as I spent time in prayer and study in the Gospels to get ready for tonight and for Sunday, I was moved, I was, I was thankful for my time in John's Gospel. And I want to ask you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 19. I want to spend some time there tonight as we look to the testimony according to John of Christ's death and then on Sunday his resurrection. John 19 verse 16. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them. To be crucified. Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, Jesus, God the Son in flesh. It is here that we see Jesus is officially ordered by the governing authorities that he is to die by crucifixion. A tortured death on a cross. The cross is the most widely known and popular symbol in the history of the world because of the magnitude of this moment in time. When we see a cross, we are reminded of Jesus. Not just his life, but specifically his death. His death by crucifixion. Death by crucifixion is one of the most horrendous, despicable, painful, agonizing forms of death ordered by the state. And speaking of crucifixion, Cicero declared that Roman citizens should not even think of the cross, nor should they speak of the cross. It was altogether too horrifying for a decent Roman citizen, regarded as for the worst of the worst. Something they shouldn't even contemplate, shouldn't even utter. Crucifixion so horrendous that we created a word to explain it. That word is excruciating. Today, when you and I use the word excruciating, It's an effort to describe the most pain, the most awful, undesirable of circumstances. Understand tonight with me, the word excruciating literally means from the cross. Perhaps the most peculiar fact about the crucifixion of Jesus is that Christians like myself, declare it to be good news. This horrific act of injustice is the best news we've ever heard. And how could this be good news? The word that the Bible uses for good news is gospel. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is our gospel. It's our good news. 
We believe it is the greatest news you could ever receive. To understand why it's good news, we we have to consider what happened on the cross of Christ. All of these horrific people and, and, and perpetrators killed on crosses for so long, and yet why is it Christ's cross that's so important? Christ's cross that makes us, when we see the cross, think of Him and consider it good news. The Apostle Paul declares in the New Testament letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The news I received, I delivered to you as the most important thing I could say to you. That Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus died. Why did He die? Why is this good news? By itself, it sounds like terrible news. A truly innocent man condemned to such a horrendous death. He died. He was killed. For what? Paul says, Christ died for our sins. That's why it's good news. The best news we've ever heard. The only true and lasting hope we ever had. Everything else fleeting. Christ died. Why? For our sins. Hear me. The gospel is the good news of the grace and the power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus' perfect, sinless life, substitutional, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection from the grave. These sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, from the eternal wrath they deserve, and they are reconciled into an eternally secure relationship with God. That's why this is good news. Amen? Jesus' death on the cross is good news because it is for sin. Sin that condemns us to death. It's good news because Jesus' death is in the place of undeserving sinners. Sinners like you and me. Look at what John says next in John 19, 16-18. They took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place they called the place of the skull. In Aramaic is called Golgotha. And they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Jesus condemned on a criminal's cross. It is here he's sentenced to die between two criminals, even though he is not a criminal. Even though he never sinned once in his life. See with me the perfect holiness of God the Son. Paying for all of the offenses committed by all of God's chosen people. The details of the death of Jesus are spoken in the Old Testament prophecies. 
long before, generations before this would occur. Places like the Messianic prophecy of Psalm 22 says they pierced my hands and my feet. Or the, Sam, the, the, song, the passage that Sam, our brother Sam read earlier tonight from Isaiah 53, where in verse 12, hundreds of years before Jesus would die, it says he was numbered with the transgressors. Long before it happened, the prophecies of God that were declared said that the Messiah would die with pierced hands and feet, would die among guilty sinners. What we have to understand is that the greatest weight and pain that Jesus would bear is not the physical pain. The beatings, his flesh literally taken from his body, exposing even his insides. The the gruesome nature of of suffocation due to the the pressures put on the body of the cross. The, The nails driven into his limbs and his legs. The weight of the cross the things that Jesus' flesh was most concerned about was not that. was not the physical. His flesh was so concerned, he was so worked up, he sweated blood. Cried out to the Father, take this cup from me. What is he contemplating? He's contemplating something far greater than the physical pain. But the atonement he would take for all our sin. Atonement is what was made at the cross of Jesus. Christ accomplished substitutionary atonement for his chosen people by canceling the debt of all their sin. In this, he, is, he appeased God's righteous and holy wrath Do that sin, earning us who trust in him all the benefits of salvation. took on the wrath, the righteous wrath due our sin. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are still the Lord of your own life, then God's wrath rightly rests on you. And if you do not trust your life to Jesus, God's wrath will torment you for eternity. This is the just and right punishment for your guilt of sin before the holy and perfect standard of God. The Bible mentions the righteous wrath of God more than 600 times. And from the first to the last page... It emphatically, consistently, repeatedly, and clearly declares that all are born sinners. 
and are in absolute need of complete and satisfying atonement if we are to have a relationship with God now and forever. In the Old Covenant, the Day of Atonement was a temporary provision given by God to point to the perfect provision that Jesus alone would provide for His people. The Old Covenant, the high priest who represented the people would take two goats. One goat would be slaughtered, its blood would be shed, the animal would die. As it says in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. In Romans 6.23, it says clearly that the wages of sin is death. Our sin earns death. Deserves death. When you sin, you earn death. In the old covenant, the animal dies as a substitute in the place of the sinful people at the hands of the high priest. The problem is, while this meant a temporary appeasement with God, it did not satisfy God's wrath as the sacrifice is incomplete. Hebrews 10.4 tells us, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Please understand tonight, sin is the worst problem in your life. We're guilty of thinking that cancer is. Or poverty or sickness or disobedient children or public humility fractured relationships with loved ones no your worst problem is so far worse than that it's that you are separated from the holy God because of your sin You must do real business with this. So often we're guilty of not, of worrying about trivial, temporary struggles, problems. But they're not our worst problem. Sin is. People will lose sleep over how they look how their life is going, maybe they'll lose sleep over the state of their health, over the loss of a job, the strain of finances, the strain of family relationships. But all of that is temporary. Your separation from God because of your sin is eternal. See that your sin, see that your offense before the holy God is not small. The, the, the list is not only long, but it's deep. The cosmic treason we're guilty of is serious. How I pray that you see tonight the depth of your sin. The separation you're, you're owed because of it. If, 
the Old Testament system of atonement was only temporary, then how can a final atonement happen? There's only one solution, according to God's word, the cross of Jesus Christ. The atonement of the spotless Lamb, God the Son, in flesh, for He's the only sacrifice worthy and able to pay for all our sin, past, present, and future. You must see you can never do enough to overcome your debt. You cannot achieve perfection and righteousness without Jesus. A man, all man made religions fall short of what true redemption is. We cannot achieve perfection and righteousness without Jesus. All, all other spiritual paths fall grossly short of the height of God's holy standard. Only Jesus brings true forgiveness and freedom from sin. This is why Jesus' death in our place is good news. Atonement. Final and complete atonement. Appeasement from God's wrath that our sin is due. Only Jesus. Romans 3.25 God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. Theologians call this penal substitution or substitutionary atonement. Simply means Jesus substituted himself in our place so he could pay our debt. He could pay the penalty. He suffered. He died physically. He died as a substitute in our place. He died the death we deserve and paid for the sin we committed. He died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins because the wage of sin is death. The good news, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love for us that while we were yet sinners, wicked, polluted, rotten, self-minded, idolaters, perverted, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who knew no sin, Jesus, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise be to God. Amen? Look at what happens next. John 19.19-22 Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. The chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In Pilate's sin, he aimed to elevate himself above Jesus from the beginning. He didn't like 
the rise of Jesus. He acted like he wasn't really a threat. By this point in the narrative, Pilate already stood over Jesus in front of the crowds and called him the king of the Jews. He did this not as a compliment, but as a mockery to his lowly state, his perceived lack of ability to overcome and rule and reign. What kind of king is this? was his point. This is another attempt of man's sinful flesh, of Pilate, to prop up Jesus and show him as a failed king. So when they post the title, King above Jesus' bodily demise, it is, it is again to highlight the failure, his failure as a king. His ultimate defeat. Pilate's not afraid to say he's the king of the Jews. Pilate's point is he's a defeated king. In this, Pilate is no different than any of us. And that often we are guilty of tearing down another to prop ourselves up. To point out the demise or the stumble of another in an attempt to get back at people. In an attempt to get people to look down on them so they might look up on us. Let me get you focused on everything that I'm not doing. All the sin that I'm doing. Let me get you focused on everything else. So I can feel superior. So I can feel better. Church, hear this warning. This is purely the work of our flesh. This kind of deflection. This is our pride. Our sin that causes us to mock and point out the failings of others. Instead, let us shed the need to speak or even think about such criticism, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of the hearers. The sake of not feeding our own fleshly pride. Let us shed thoughts like this. Instead, follow our Master's teaching and example to go low for others, no matter what we deserve. The greatest attribute of Christian is is one that is constantly looking for a way to die to self, to elevate others. No matter how high-ranking or accomplished we are. He said the first will be last in his kingdom, and the last will be first. Note the irony in the fact that even though Pilate had sinful intentions for the sign of mockery, it heralds the fact that Jesus is indeed the king. The announcement that Jesus is the king happened since his incarnation, his birth, his taking on flesh. In his infancy, wise men herald him as king in Matthew 2 2. His triumphal entry. In the Passion Week, the multitudes cried out, Blessed is the King of Israel. John 12, 13. Before Pilate, Jesus himself bore witness to his kingdom. John 18, 36 and 37. And now the announcement of Jesus as King hangs above his head as he fights the battle of all battles. To win back his kingdom once and for all. It is there, if there ever was a moment where Joseph's famous words in Genesis 
50 verse 20 are true, it is here. That what man meant for evil, God used it for good to bring about that many people should live. Amen? Look at another layer of man's sin at work at the death of Jesus as we continue in John's narrative. John 19, 23-24 When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments, they divided them into four parts, one part for each shoulder, soldier. Also His tunic, The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture, which said they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They crucified Him. That means they fixed His body to a tree by driving spikes through it, His wrist and His feet. Imagine the horror of seeing an animal that you love and cherish nailed to your fence or to a tree. And that's a pet. This is God the Son. A grown man mounted to a wooden post with long spikes through the most sensitive nerve centers in the body. Once affixed, they would stand the cross and drop it in its hole, hoisted in the air. The first major reality would come instantly as the body settled towards the earth. An enormous amount of pressure on those lacerated tendons and nerves surrounding these rusted spikes. And all that is left is just to suffer slowly. To suffocate slowly. Cross-worst penalty was on the lungs, the heart, the strain, the stress. The way the body hung placed pressure on the chest. person hanging there would need to lift themselves in order to relieve the lungs to try to sneak a breath. As long as this tedious process could happen, for most they eventually would just suffocate and die. Death by crucifixion was often very slow, very agonizing, horrifying asphyxiation in public. People watching you. This was done openly and publicly. The death could sometimes take days. Literally, people would wilt in the sun. Mocked, they're mocked, they're spat upon, they're ridiculed. They throw stones at them. Treating them like worthless trash. Laughing, joking, jarring. John says they took his garments, divided them, cast lots for them. So see with me, they had Jesus' clothes in their possession. They stripped him naked and hung him on a tree. Why? Because that's just another layer of the ridicule. Another reason why our pictures and portrayals of Jesus all fall short, none of them appropriate to show true form. His face disfigured, his body all opened up, blood gushing. This was reserved for the worst 
of the worst criminals. The most evil kind of torture, and yet there hangs the most holy and innocent and glorious man to ever live. His life, his body, naked and broken for all to see. What a display of man's utter wickedness and at the same time of Christ's compassion and love. See with me that there's no comfort for him. There's no shield. There's no hiding from the full penalty to be paid. He's doing this for me, for you, for our sin. Why? He hung there naked and ashamed so that I could be clothed in His righteousness and so that I could be unashamed. Adam and Eve's first reality as sin came upon and went to work in mankind was, was shame, judgment. They hid themselves. Sin, lust, jealousy, envy, fear of man all went to work like that. And they were ashamed. And they, God provided them skins, the skins of animals. to. But this would just be a temporary cover. For spiritually, they were still full of shame. God would provide another cover for His people. One that could reach the depths of our souls. To, to the fullest of our sin and shame and give us a new identity, give us true joy and peace. The spotless lamb would be slain, and he would take our shame and our sin. He became naked and exposed so that we could be clothed in his righteousness and glory. His robe is taken off and gambled for, so that He could put on each of us who trust our lives to Him His robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Amen? Remember Jesus' story, the prodigal son took the Father's blessings and then ran and went and spent it on wild living, thinking all these things the world promoted and sold me and drinking and running around with girls and all this is, I, that's what I want. I want to go do all that. And he did it and, and, and it all failed him. He's left with nothing. He's left in the gutter. The world will use you and spit you out. He's tending to pigs and he realizes that he's worse off than his father's servants. Returns home to confess his sin and repent. And the father receives his son with grace and puts his best robe on him and brings him into his house for celebration. This is what Jesus is doing on the cross for his prodigal people. This is what he did for each one here who truly trusts their lives to him. You die to yourself. You're no longer in charge. You say, Lord, here's my life. I do it all your way. 
I don't want my way anymore. I want your way. Take my life. It's all for you. The quote, they divided my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. This quote is from the same psalm I quoted earlier, Psalm 22. In 17 and 18 of Psalm 22, it says, I, I can count all my bones. They, they, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Why can he count his bones? Why do, why do they stare over him? Because he can see them. Because the whipping wasn't lashes. No, there was, there was insertion into the leather that, that, that tore and took the flesh off of him. prophecy of old that these things would happen is a, another reminder to us that this was God's plan from the beginning. Ephesians, the book we're studying right now on Sundays, chapter 1, 7-10, through 10, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. All the prophecy of all generations of the past make one thing utterly clear. The One who hung on the cross was indeed the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Continue with me in John's narrative, verse chapter 19, 24 through 27. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. For from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. What a blessed group this is. Bystanders. I've always considered this is a special view of the kingdom that Jesus had from his elevated position on the cross that his elect, his people, To see his sheep, his family, his eternal family, that he was paying for their adoption, their redemption. It must have been a sweet moment in the midst of all the misery. We've not heard or seen much of Jesus' mother since her birth and Jesus' younger years. Um, but here, her presence here is very sobering. In addition to Mary, we're, we're told that her sister is there, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was cured of evil spirits and was known to be a faithful follower of Jesus. 
and the disciple whom Jesus loved, John himself, the author of this very gospel, was part of the inner circle among James and Peter. Not only was John a faithful disciple, but a close friend. And Jesus says to Mary, his mother, Woman, behold your son. In boyhood, Jesus had honored his parents. We spoke of that recently in our time in Ephesians. Luke 2.52 Here he still does on the cross. Faithful son. As Jesus bears our guilt and wrath, he's still ministering. He's still shepherding his flock. As he prepares to leave the world, he provides family for this widowed mother. This is the second time he's addressed Mary as woman. The first time at the wedding of Cana, John 2.4. Neither references in this way were harsh or rude, but likely focused on the change about to take place in their relationship. God's sovereign design for Mary as the mother of Jesus has now run its course. And in the blood-bought redemption Jesus would provide, Mary would become an adopted sister and daughter of the living God. Consider that reality for us all, whether it be your spouse or a child or a parent or a friend. In God's eternal kingdom, there will, they will know, I will no longer be your pastor. Jennifer will no longer be my wife. God's Word is clear. These roles serve God's purposes only in this life. In His kingdom, there will only be adopted sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. For the enemies of God will be in another place. This is a precious moment, church, for Jesus to point His beloved friends and family together to say, be family to each other. Can I say this is one of the high joys of what God is doing in our church. So many of you are feeling more and more like true family, like never before. For many of you, you're coming to know what family truly is for the first time in your life. And I praise God for the union He's forming in us as blood-bought Adopted brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Continue with me. John 19, 28 through 29. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it at his mouth. The late great theologian A.W. Pink speaks of this this way. The Lord Jesus was not a divine man, nor a humanized God. He was the God-man. Forever God, and now forever man. When the eternal Word became incarnate, He did not cease to be God, nor did He lay aside any of His divine attributes, but He did become flesh, being made in all things like unto His brethren, he increased in wisdom and stature. He wearied in body. He hungered. He slept. He marveled. He wept. 
He prayed, he rejoiced, he groaned, and here he thirsted. God does not thirst. And we shall not thirst in glory. But Christ did thirst as man in the depths of his humiliation. Once again, Jesus fulfills the prophecy spoken in Psalm 22, verse 15, 14 and 15, saying, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Church, he's dying. His flesh is exhausted. He's giving us all of his flesh, literally. When holding the unleavened bread, the Lord's table, he didn't just die. He really gave up all of his flesh in the most unique way. He's thirsty, but not just needing a drink. He's thirsty to his core. Jesus dies of thirst to take away our sin so that we could have the living water in his righteousness. Amen? Jesus said it himself, the woman at the well, John 4.14, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus experienced the ultimate spiritual thirst and died in torment so we could have the cool water of eternity with the living God. This is good news because just like the outcast woman at the well, no matter your moral background, social status, gender, religious history, sinful baggage that you carry, lifelong addictions, Jesus quenches your soul thirst. And just as he said to her, I say to you, the hour has come. Drink. Be quenched. Be reconciled to God. Jesus died of thirst in our place so that we could have a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. Think of the good news that that is. Think of how, how much that replaces all the lame, temporary stuff that we whine and complain about not going right. In John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished. He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. The Bible declares that it was spoken in a loud voice. Jesus cried out, It is finished! And His work was done. Our substitute died in our place and atonement was made for our sins. Jesus Christ hung on a cross and was cursed in our place. And in that moment, His work is done. Our substitute died in our place. Jesus made perfect and final God-satisfying atonement for our sins. Romans 5, 6-11, while, 
We were still weak at the right time. Jesus died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus died for us sinners, and it was finished. Some of you have been told that after his death, Jesus went to hell to suffer there for three days, be tormented by Satan and demons. It's nonsense. He did not suffer in hell under the hand of Satan. No, it was finished. It was done. He said to the thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. How is Jesus suffering in hell if today he's with that redeemed thief in paradise? That's because Jesus went to paradise. He he went to those who had died before him, but full of faith in him. What a moment that was for those to see him. He's there. What a moment that will be for us. First Corinthians fifteen fifty five. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Christian, are you living to righteousness? If all this is to you is religion, walk away. You have nothing. You're not saved by religion, by practices that you do, things you try to accomplish. That's not salvation. You need Jesus. And the evidence that you have, Jesus, is you're dying to yourself and you're living for him. When you're confronted with your sin, you do business with it. You don't make excuses. You don't take the easy road. You don't take a different path. You look to his word and you repent and you trust him. That's what it means to walk by faith. You trust him. When it doesn't make sense to you, you trust him. And you honor him. You live for him. You fight your sin. You put it away and you do what's right.
By his wounds you've been healed, Peter says. He's very clearly alluding to Isaiah 53, what we heard earlier read by Sam. Surely he has borne our griefs, griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. By his death, Jesus paid the price of our, our sins. And when he returns to glorify his people, he made a way that we would finally be done with all of the hurt and pain and sickness. Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, and the former things have passed away. This is the living hope that only those who have trusted Jesus have. Church, we have much to praise Him for. Amen? For Jesus has done what we could not do. What no one else could do, He made a way. He finished the most important task ever given. He paid the highest price. If you truly don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you do not live your life for His glory, you must see that you're still the Lord of your own life. If you're not serious about His Word and His ways and His people and His church, if you're somehow deciding, I put those things off, I, I make my own way, you're still Lord of your own life. Don't hang your, yourself, your eternity on, on a prayer you said or a season you walked in the church. No. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? If so, you are His you are His and you belong to Him and you live for Him. But if He's not Lord of your life, you're still guilty in your sin. Your efforts to seek peace with God through man-made efforts is arrogance. Somehow thinking you're going to be okay. God knows my heart. Does he? Jesus said very clearly, many who did many things in the name of Jesus and for the church and for the ministry, he'll tell them, I never knew you. Is he the Lord of your life? Do you submit to his ways and call them good? Or are you still calling your own shots? You need the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Only Jesus pays it all. Only through Jesus can you know the grace and love of the Father. It is finished only in Jesus. 
Repent and trust in Jesus alone for everlasting life, for life with God. If this is you, I'm so excited to hear from you. I want to celebrate this with you. This might be some of you I've known for a long time. Praise God. Celebrate new birth. Let us wrap our arms around each other and walk together, maturing in faith, practicing repentance and growing in sanctification. Church, brothers, sisters in Christ, praise God that it is finished. Praise God for Jesus' death on the cross in our place. Don't let these songs become routine. Don't let that imagery become mute to you. See his love. See God's grace. Let it move you into a humble place of living every day for his glory. We have much to praise him for. We have much to thank him for. So let us pray, and we'll do that. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you for John's gospel and the unique layers of the testimony of Christ's death that we've got to be blessed to spend time with tonight that are helpful to us, helpful to slow down and to remember. I pray for souls in this room, some of our children and youth, Family and friends, maybe people who just come in off the street, found a Good Friday service on a website. But if they're truly honest, while they might have a lot of story of church or even doing some of the things that church does, but they would do business with you tonight to really slow and consider, are these things for me? Did Jesus do this for me? And if so, that we'd be moved. That grace, your grace would be irresistible. And that we would so quickly confess our sin, have nothing, no reason to try to hide it, excuse it, cover it, just be genuinely honest. This is my sin. And just to trust ourselves to fall into the, the arms of the Lord that He would rule and reign our lives. Forever changed. The Spirit at work, moving, growing. For, for any of those who, to whom this applies, I pray they would share it, not keep it to themselves. I pray they would ask questions. I pray they would return, that they would dig in, that they would count this day as a great blessing of the movement of God in their lives, grace of God. And for the church, for my brothers and sisters, that we are just sweetly reminded and taken to the depths of the beauty of your grace, the, the width of your love, and just reminded of how we have nothing to add. We bring nothing. 
desperate for Jesus, only Jesus. Lord, may our flesh be nothing and may Christ be everything. And so as we contemplate these things that we're moved, we're motivated to worship, we're motivated to testimony, exaltation of the one true God, now and forever. How sweet it will be. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Hear us now as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.